series uh, to you this morning. It's called, What Did Jesus Teach? What Did Jesus Teach? And so uh, the sermon comes out of a place of one, wanting to look at the teachings of Jesus. That's a really good thing to do as we gather at church. It also comes from a place of looking around sort of popular society uh, and seeing, you know what, there's still a good deal of admiration for Jesus. People like Jesus. Um, And yet, at the same time, you can see that Christianity is in decline in our nation. And so I wondered if maybe what we need is some more clarity on what Jesus actually taught. Because it doesn't make sense to me that people could be like, oh, I love Jesus. I I think it might be the Jesus of their imagination. And then reject the teachings of Christianity. So let's refresh our mind. Let's go back to Scripture and let's say, okay, well, what did Jesus actually teach? And I think what we're going to find in the coming weeks is that what he taught was very countercultural to what is happening in our world today. And if we actually understood what Jesus really taught, uh, we, there may, he might lose some fans and hopefully gain some followers, as they say. Part of this sermon series came out of a couple of books I've recently picked up. One is called 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity. And the other is called Confronting Christianity. They're both written by Rebecca McLaughlin. They both have very similar content just put together in an audience for teenagers and an audience for adults. And so those are great resources that I'll reference as we go through this series, because what I began to think is, okay, there's all kinds of teachings of Jesus, right? We've got four Gospels to go through, so how do we pick the right things to teach about during this window of time for our church? So I began to look at the chapters in her books, like you have chapters like this. How can you believe that the Bible is true? Another chapter, hasn't science disproved Christianity? So Rebecca's point in her books is one I agree with. Let's not avoid uncomfortable topics. Let's confront them. Let's say, you know what? No, every teenager should actually answer this question, as should each of us. So let's see. Well, did Jesus teach anything about the Bible? What did Jesus teach about the Bible? And at the very beginning of the Bible, you have the book of Genesis, and it it says that God created the heavens and the earth. And so, yeah, let's talk about what did Jesus teach about the Bible? Another chapter is uh, she has in her book is, uh, Why Can't We Just Believe That Love Is Love? Another chapter, Who Cares If You Are a Boy or a Girl? Well, did Jesus teach on those topics? And if he did, then would it not be good to see what Jesus taught? How can you believe in heaven and hell? Well, let's see what Jesus taught about heaven and hell. So that's the concept of the series. Uh, we're going to start this day with, What Did Jesus Teach About Living Your Best Life? So this is a popular idea in our culture today. We want to live our best life. And so let's see what Jesus taught about living our best life. But before we look at what Jesus taught, let's just set the stage a little bit for the the context that we're living in. So if you do just a quick Google search, you just start scrolling through the Internet, or if you want to pick up books and magazines, what you're going to find is some really helpful tips on how to live your best life. There's a lot of content out there on the topic. There's going to be good advice like declutter, keep a journal, Relish simple things. Those are all wonderful ideas. And you can find lots of great ideas uh, on this topic of how to live your best life. But the longer you dig and the longer you read on this topic of how to live your best life now, you're going to eventually hit this theme. And you'll hear it. Be the best version of yourself. Love yourself. Observe yourself. Be true to yourself. Know yourself. So self is the popular word right now in the culture. Just check the self-help section of the bookstore. Self-care, self-knowledge, self-awareness, self-compassion, self-actualization. 
Now, don't get me wrong, I'm all for the self. I actually really enjoy learning more about myself, and I love myself. Uh, and if you're honest, uh, you probably do too. I mean, not me, but you probably, well, that didn't go how I wrote it in my notes. Um... I, uh, I am created in the image of God as you are. And as a special creation of God, there is a sense in which it is very appropriate for you to love who you are and who God has created you to be. Because you are a special creation. You are his child. And it's also very important for you to steward who you are and who God has made you to be. If you come to our New to Northgate course that I lead, I, I, I lay that foundation in the course. One thing as a church that we want to be really is foundational to us is that you understand who you are. You're creating the image of God, but you are also broken. And you need to understand who you are and confess that sin and look to God to heal you and redeem you. But you also need to look and see what dreams has God put in my heart? What gifts has God given me? How can I be all that I can be for my Savior and serve Him as my Lord? So it's good. I enjoy understanding the self. But just for the record, do you see what I just did there? It doesn't matter necessarily what I think about the self. We gathered here to see what Jesus taught about the self. So what did Jesus teach about self? Or what did Jesus teach about living your best life? That's what we want to answer. So John chapter 10, verse 10 is a teaching of Jesus that we can look at. What did Jesus teach about living the best life? Well, he said in John 10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So Jesus' teaching on how to live your best life is this. He said, listen, if you want to live your best life, come follow me. I came that you might have life and have life to the fullest. Now, Jesus also talked a lot about eternal life. And sometimes when we talk about this topic amongst Christians, we, we want to highlight the fact that uh, we can't live our best life here and now. Our best life is yet to come in heaven. That's absolutely true. But the way we're framing up this service this morning isn't comparing this life to heaven. There's no comparison. But what we're saying as we use the term this morning is we're saying in this 20 years, 100 years that God gives me here on this earth, how can these years be the best possible years that I can live? And Jesus said, listen, I came to answer that question. I came so that you would have the most abundant, the fullest life possible. Now, a lot of well-intentioned pastors will tell you that uh, here's what Jesus meant by that and here's how you can follow Jesus to the best life. I disagree with a lot of people, and I disagree with a lot of pastors. For example, one of them wrote a book called Your Best Life Now. And this pastor, Joel Olstein, tells you on page 5 that God wants to increase you financially. So I, I disagree with Joel Olstein on a number of topics, but this is one I disagree with him on. Uh, I can't say with confidence, like he apparently can, that God wants to increase you financially. God may want to increase you financially. God may not want to increase you financially. God may want to decrease you financially. So there's what's called prosperity preachers out there that will take this teaching that, of Jesus that he wants you to have your best life, and they will present it to you in ways that I don't agree with. I think they present it in ways sometimes that skew the words of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus. So as I look to answer that question of how, okay, well, how, Jesus, are you going to cause me to live the best life? So let's look to some of his teachings. Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 25. All these verses are obviously in the Bible, in the Bible that's in your pew, the Bible that's on your phone, and uh, we're going to read them. They're on the screens as well. 
Luke 9, 23 to 25, Jesus said to all, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would uh, save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? The teachings of Jesus are countercultural. The teachings of Jesus are in opposition to what is trending in our culture as it relates to how you should live your best life. Those things are popular culture. The brochure that they print that says, here's how to live your best life, it's full of self, 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 self. And Jesus says, oh, I have a chapter on the self. And Jesus says, listen, this is what you need to do if you want to have the most abundant life possible, is you should deny yourself. You should deny yourself. And that, that strikes us as odd, right? Because I am just naturally wired that I want a full life, and this path leads me to what I can clearly see as fullness, so I will pursue it. And Jesus says, no, 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 actually deny yourself and follow me down this path. It's counterintuitive. It's backwards. It's countercultural. But it's true. His path will lead to abundance. I'll, I'll use you all as an illustration this morning to make the point. You are the hero of this story. You got up this morning and came to church. Now, many of our friends at home wish they had the same opportunities you do to come as well. They're taking care of someone who's vulnerable or they themselves are sick or they have to work in order to care for their family. There's lots of good reasons to not be at church. And if you're not with us today, we love you and miss you and we assume the best. But the majority of people didn't turn on the computer and didn't get out of bed and didn't come to church this morning. The majority of people in Pittsburgh, I would say, chose in some sense to give in to themselves this morning, right? Not to deny themselves. They, they said, you know what, I give uh, the other five or six days of the week to my boss or to this other person or to this thing. And you know what Sunday morning is? It's the day where I can just do what I want to do. And every other morning I'm told what I have to do. Can I just have one day a week where I can just begin my day and do what I want to do and not have to fill the demands of someone else? I just don't want to deny myself. I don't see how denying myself is going to lead me onto a path that is fuller than the path that I choose to keep as I stay here and stay home. But do you realize that the people who go to church at least once a week are happier healthier and longer lived than people who don't. Rachel and her books cite all kinds of research, research that suggests that those who regularly attend services are more optimistic, have lower rates of depression, are less likely to commit suicide, have a greater purpose in life, are less likely to divorce, and are more self-controlled. Now, obviously, people in church still get divorced and still have anxiety and depression. But she's just making a general and broad point that you can take research from Christians or from non-Christians, put all this research together, and you can find some things that we all agree on, Christian or non-Christian, and that is that those who regularly attend church services are generally more optimistic and healthier people. I love it whenever researchers find something that, that God already said 2,000 years ago, and then they get a headline because their scientific research made it true. And I'm really happy that their scientific research made it true. That's why I'm sharing it with you. But sometimes you eye roll a little bit, and you're like, well, you know, God said it like thousands of years ago, and I'm happy that you have discovered it. Um, And so if we think to ourselves, well, the path of self-denial doesn't seem to lead to a path of abundance. But it does. Research even shows it. It doesn't matter what the research says. It doesn't matter what God says. 
We could, we chose to use the illustration of church attendance this morning. We could use it with anything. We can use it with sex. Okay, follow your heart and don't deny yourself. But research will show you, as God already has made it clear, that free love, STDs, and broken marriages are not in a pathway of abundant life. Use drugs and alcohol. You can follow your heart. Do whatever your heart wants to do. Don't deny yourself and see if that lifestyle is one of abundance. Or you could choose to exercise self-discipline and you could use self-control and follow the teachings of Scripture and you could probably have a more abundant life. You could build your wealth and buy whatever you want whenever you want. But research will show you that money does not lead to happiness. The World Happiness Report 2018 reported that in the U.S., income per capita has more than doubled since 1972. Well, happiness has remained roughly unchanged. Or has even declined. More money does not equal happiness. I could go on and on with these illustrations. The point is, Jesus presented a pathway. He taught us things. And if we will obey what he taught us and deny ourselves and obey him rather than our desires, that pathway will lead us to the best life. There's another teaching of him, of his that we could look at to reinforce this point. Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. It says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. The wide gate is easy and many find it. The narrow gate is hard and few find it. So the point is a really simple one, isn't it? And the illustration is actually quite helpful. There's a, there's a path, there's a gate that's wide, everybody's on it, and it's super easy to go down. The other path is narrow and hard, and there's very few people on it. Jesus is teaching us that living your best life is hard. It's hard to follow after Jesus and deny yourself. He's just laying it right out for you. This is a hard road that I'm calling you to follow me down. Dr. Ann Lemke is a professor of psychiatry at Stanford. She's done a lot of research on the opioid epidemic in America. Um, again, she's one of these researchers that has stumbled upon an eternal truth and gets to get headlines because she's framed it in scientific research. But we will champion it. In her research, she shares that the wealthiest countries in the world have the highest rates of suicide, anxiety, depression, and physical pain. You study, do all this research that she does. The wealthiest countries in the world have the highest rates of suicide, anxiety, depression, and physical pain. We have houses and cars and clothes and conveniences. Now get this clear, because this is easy to get distracted on. Her research isn't really about wealth at all. She specializes in the opioid epidemic. Her research is really centered on the fact that with wealth comes ease, comes technology. I mean, opioid, what do you take an opioid for? So that you'll make your day easier. So over all the technology, all the good things in our society, from the cars to the phones to the great ease that we have, it comes with our wealth. So from the wealth comes ease, and with ease comes higher rates of anxiety, depression, and physical pain. She writes, the more we experience the good life, the more miserable we become. She says, it's almost like we weren't meant for this much excess materialism, pleasure, and ease. 
the easier we have it, it seems like it's the more miserable we become. It's almost like God called us to a hard road. And the longer we try to stay on the wide and easy road that everybody else is on, then the more anxiety and things that come and pile up into our life. Not to imply that there's an anxiety and depression on the narrow road. There is. But the gate is wide and easy that leads to destruction and many find it. The gate is narrow and hard that leads to life. And there are few people that will walk that road with you. It's hard to come to church every Sunday. Maybe you're sitting there and being like, no, it's not. I do it every Sunday. Well, it's the same as if I say to my friend who works out, it's hard to work out every day. And they say to me, no, it's not. And I'm like, well, it is. Trust me. It is. Um, it is hard to live a disciplined life and come to church every Sunday. It's hard. When everyone around you is taking an easier road, it's hard to give your money to God's work. It's hard to carve out of your budget money to give to missionaries or to other people that are doing God's work in the world. It's hard to do when everyone around you is on a wide road and they're buying houses and cars and nice things. It's a hard road. It's hard not to engage in gossip and in dirty jokes and, and foul language when everyone around you is taking an easier road and is just engaging in it. It's hard to block out time to volunteer when everyone else is doing other things with their time. It's hard to forgive when everyone else is canceling. It's hard to extend grace again and again and again when everyone else has written them off. It's hard to actually hold and follow the teachings of Jesus when everyone else just gets to say, well, well, that's true for you, but not true for me, and I'm just going to follow my own truth. It's hard to actually follow the teachings of Jesus when his teachings come out of my mouth and popular society tells me it's hate speech. It's hard to follow the teachings of Jesus. It's a narrow road, and few people are on it. That's what Jesus taught us. On pages 29 and 30 of Confronting Christianity, Rebecca McLaughlin introduces us to two characters. One's name's Bob and one named Mary. Bob is 35 years old, single, white, attractive, and athletic. He earns over $100,000 a year and lives in sunny Southern California. He spends his free time reading and going to museums. Mary. Mary and her husband live in snowy Buffalo, New York, where they earn a combined income of $40,000. Mary is 65 years old, black and overweight and plain in appearance. She is highly sociable and she spends her free time mostly in activities related to her church. She is on dialysis for kidney problems. Mary has health problems. She lives in relative poverty and has doubtless endured discrimination. Bob seems to have it all. Rebecca didn't actually come up with these profiles. She shares them. They were originally written about by an atheist psychologist. This atheist psychologist wrote a book called The Happiness Hypothesis. And he writes in that book that he has no doubt in his mind that Mary is happier than Bob. The atheist's name is Jonathan Haidt, and he writes, Just as the plants need sun, water, and good soil to thrive, people need love, work, and a connection to something larger. It's interesting to me how 
an atheist is often, or in this sense, is seemingly so much closer to the teachings of Jesus than many other people in popular society today. If you want to find happiness, if you want to live the best life, then you need to be connected to something greater. And we would take that beyond because Jesus' words say, well, actually, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said, I came that you would have life and that you would have it abundantly. So unless we are connected to Jesus and the teachings of Jesus, that's where true happiness lies. You don't need research to tell it to you. It's nice to hear, but God's been saying this for thousands of years. Jesus came to teach us how to have the best life possible. It's by denying ourselves, taking up our cross, and following Him. And that is a hard road. And there are few people that will be on it with us. Don't take the easy road and follow the crowds and always just focus on yourself all the time. Take the hard road and deny yourself and look to Jesus and obey Him. And that's how you can live your best life. We do want to close our service with communion, like we said. So as I draw, turn my attention to Jesus on the cross, a question comes to mind. Did Jesus live his best life? Did Jesus live his best life? Huh. He lived the vast majority of his life as an unknown in a small town, in a small country that was occupied by oppressive Roman Empire. Once he started his ministry, we're told that he didn't have a home. He had very few possessions. By the end of his ministry, he's abandoned by the crowds and even by his closest friends. He's hanging there on the cross, mocked, ridiculed, spit on, beaten, abandoned, suffering. He dies on the cross. Did Jesus live his best life? Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you know why? Because all through the Gospels, you will hear Jesus telling us this. Not my will, but my Father's will. All through the Gospels, Jesus is telling us, I denied myself and I did the will of the Father. Every step of the way, Jesus obeyed the Father. Every step of the way, he denied himself and he was obedient to the will of the Father. That's why in the garden before the cross, he says, oh, is there any other way, Father? And then he says, oh, not my will, but thy will be done. Jesus absolutely lived his best life because he was consistently obedient to the will of the Father. It could just be that what we need to do is reimagine the picture of the best life. Because the brochure that's being passed around in pop culture, that brochure of the best life, doesn't look anything like a man hanging on a cross who just sacrificed everything out of love for his father and out of love for others. That's the picture of the best life. As we turn our attention to the bread and the cup, let me read for you what Jesus taught us about this ordinance that we follow. So in the book of Luke, chapter 22, verses 19 to 20, Jesus teaches us. He's sitting at the table with his disciples, and it says, And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup is poured out for you and it is the new covenant in my blood. So we do this out of remembrance for the great sacrifice that Jesus gave to us to forgive us of our sins, to extend us grace in this new covenant that he wants to enter into with us. But before we partake of this together as a church family, I want to give you a moment of silence. I want to give you the opportunity, and you can even close your eyes right now and bow your head. And as you have just a moment of silence, here are some questions that maybe can be in your head. What road am I on? Am I on a wide and easy road, or am I on a narrow and hard road? Am I denying myself and obeying Jesus, or am I just giving in to myself all the time? Perhaps in this moment of silence, you might realign, realign with God. You might confess your sins and trust in his forgiveness and his death on the cross. I'll give you this time to talk to him. He loves you and he's full of forgiveness and grace and compassion. He loves you and he would love for you to talk to him in your heart in these moments.